The title of this message is God's Flower, the Flower of Our Faith, or Tulip, whichever you like. God's Flower, Tulip. I'm not a flower planter. I don't belittle or bemoan those who are. God bless you, they're beautiful. I love to drive by and see flowers in people's gardens and front yards. And in particular, I love to drive by and see tulips shining brightly in people's yards. They are a brilliant flower, a very strong and vibrant color. And the theology that is behind the tulip is more brilliant yet, more vivid yet, more glorious yet than even that flower Tulip, of course, being the acronym for the basic construct, the basic theological declaration of our faith. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the faith. These are key soteriological truths of our faith. And the denial of any one of these truths leads to error upon error upon error. And so I desire in the spring of the year, I would have tulips spring up in your hearts. And I would see you protected from the errors that would oppose these fundamental truths of our faith. So we will look at these today. Again, a topical message. We will be searching the Scriptures, so you'll need to stretch out your thumbs and fingers and have them ready to be turning pages. God's flower, tulip. John Calvin, the famous theologian and pastor of Geneva, died in 1564, along with Martin Luther in Germany, He was the most influential force of the Protestant Reformation. His commentaries and institutes of the Christian religion are still exerting tremendous influence on the Christian church worldwide, and to be honest, on the Western world, even the secular world, whether they know it or not. The churches which have inherited the teachings of Calvin are usually called Reformed, as opposed to the Lutheran or Episcopalian branches of the Reformation. While not all Baptist churches hold to a Reformed theology, there is a significant Baptist tradition which grew out of and still cherishes the central doctrines inherited from the Reformed branch of the Reformation, Reformed Baptist, Baptist Confession of 1689, and so forth. The controversy between Arminianism and Calvinism arose in Holland in the early 1600s. The founder of the Arminian party, or Arminian disposition, was Jacob Arminius. He studied under the strict Calvinist Theodore Beza at Geneva and became a professor of theology at the University of Leiden in 1603. Gradually, Arminius came to reject certain Calvinist teachings. The controversy spread all over Holland, where the Reformed Church was the overwhelming majority. The Arminians, followers of Jacob Arminius, the Arminians drew up their creed in five articles. They had five main points and laid them before the state authorities of Holland in 1610 under the name of Remonstrance. 
signed by 46 ministers. The Calvinists responded with a counter-remonstrance, but the official Calvinistic response came from the Synod of Dort, which was held to consider the five articles from November 13, 1618 to May 9, 1619. There were 84 members and 18 secular commissioners. The Synod wrote what has come to be known as the Canons of Dort. These are still part of the Church Confession of the Reformed Church in America and the Christian Reformed Church. They state the five points of Calvinism in response to the five articles of the Arminian Remonstrance. In short, the five points of Calvinism, TULIP, were a response to the five points of Jacob Arminius and his Arminian followers. It is more important to give a positive biblical position on the five points than to know the exact form of the original controversy. These five points are still at the heart of biblical theology. They are not unimportant. They are vital. A great many errors flow out of an ignorance of these theological distinctions. And these are not theological distinctions of some subset, uh, merely some little reformed branch. This is the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. This is what the scriptures teach. And so while, yes, there are historic figures who battled theologically over these issues, you can find these truths, while not under the acronym TULIP, you can find these truths, while not coming from a synod of Dort or any other, you can find these truths throughout the pages of church history and the writings of theologians and pastors and letters to various churches. More importantly, you can find these doctrines from Genesis to Revelation in the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. The first point of the sermon, the first point of our acronym, TULIP, is, of course, total depravity. Total depravity. All men are sinners by nature. You'll find this statement in your bulletin. All men are sinners by nature and are dead to spiritual things. Apart from God, they are unable to do good or to seek Him. They are not only passively overcome by sin, but actively and willingly engage their strength, ability, and gifts in its pursuit. Furthermore, sin has affected all parts of man. The heart, emotions, will, mind, and body are all affected by sin. We are completely sinful. We are not as sinful as we could be, but that's only to the praise and mercy of God, not to any merit or goodness in ourselves. We're not as sinful as we could be, but we are completely affected by sin in the totality of our being. The doctrine of total depravity is derived from the Holy Scriptures that reveal human character, man's heart, as evil and that man is a slave of sin. He does not in and of himself seek God. He cannot of himself understand spiritual things. He is in fact at enmity with God. And is by nature, by nature, a child of wrath. Not a child of God. It's a common saying out in secular society, we're, we're all children of God. Now what God are they speaking of? I do not know. 
And if by the, the collective character of mankind we're all children of God, then, then God's offspring are rotten to the core. The Calvinist asked the question, in light of the scriptures that declare man's true nature as being utterly lost and incapable, how is it possible for anyone to choose or desire God? The answer is, he cannot. Therefore, God must predestine, elect, choose, regenerate, reveal himself to those who he's calling to himself and grant to them the gifts, the twin gifts of repentance and faith. We find this throughout Scripture, and this will be a a truncated search of the Scriptures on this doctrine of total depravity. But look to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, and and you may may end up wanting just to listen to the Scriptures, and, and if you desire, go back to the recording and write them down then and Search the scriptures as a good Berean yourself. But Genesis 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of the, every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You eat of this fruit and you shall die. Spiritually, you will be dead. And that's exactly what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve ate of this fruit and they spiritually died and all of their children died in them. We, the literal descendants of Adam and Eve, died in them. And we have inherited spiritual death, thus we are still born, spiritually speaking. You eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Romans 5, 12, in agreement with Genesis 2 and extending it, says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, Adam, the head of mankind, our great-great-great-great-grandfather, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so through Adam, sin entered mankind. Through Adam, we are made dead in Sin And we aren't just positionally dead. We are actively express our deadness. We live out that sin. Every child born soon begins to manifest that sin nature. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You don't have to teach a child to steal. You don't have to teach a child to lash out in anger and hit. That is innate to their character. They must be taught not to steal, not to lie, not to hit. They must be taught not to murder, not to blaspheme the one true God. They come from the womb as intense lovers of self and haters of God. And as parents with tender hearts, as grandparents with more tender hearts yet, perhaps. We don't like to hear such. But it is true. They must be born again, or they will remain dead in sin and trespass and children of the devil. We are not all children of God, and we need only look out to the world to see that. What do we see the character in the character of mankind collectively? We see that they are children of the devil. 
And they must, by the grace of God, become children of God. Be born again from above, for they are totally and radically depraved. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others." Now, this is speaking to those who are now saved, but it reveals the character of mankind collectively. We were collectively dead in sin and trespass. We were collectively walking according to the course of the world in obedience to the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, who works in them, and thus formerly us, if now we are in Christ, who works in them as sons of disobedience, conducting ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And so it's a corruption of the flesh, a corruption of the mind, a corruption of the character. And we're by nature, by nature, the fundamental nature of mankind outside of the grace of God is that of children of wrath, just as the others. That's the universal condition of mankind. Total depravity. That's the bad news. The essential bad news. Psalm 51.5, the psalmist says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not accusing his mother of being some adulteress. He's saying this is the common disposition of mankind. This is the universal condition of mankind. My mother, a sinner, my father, a sinner, produced a Sinner, because they were descendants of sinners, Adam and Eve. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It is interesting, and I don't protest it, that we celebrate birthdays, and we should. Every child, every human being is a precious gift from God. But another sinner was born into the world. If we could nail down the rebirth days, the the day we were born again, that would be the day to celebrate. For we're born dead in sin and trespass. We're born as haters of God and lovers of self. We're born dangerous to ourselves and others. And we must be born again, as Jesus said. Jeremiah 17, 9 is a fairly famous verse, an excellent verse. Memory verse, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So the heart of a man, woman, or child born dead in sin and trespass is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Desperately. Not not a a little wicked. Not mildly wicked. um, Not marginalized. Not misunderstood. Not tired. Not hungry. These are all the things we like to say to excuse sin, right? I'm tired. I'm I'm hungry. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Outside of the grace of God, that is a condition of every human heart. 
deceitful and desperately wicked. Oh, how we should pray for our children and how we should consistently and biblically discipline our children. How we should bring the law of God to be a tutor, to bring them to Christ that they might be justified by faith and not just our children, but our neighbors, our friends, our family members, any and all that are not yet born again from above. For while God is sovereign in salvation, God is a sovereign means. The means he uses in his sovereignty is the word of God. His faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And this is part of what they need to hear. They need to hear the bad news of their heart condition. Years ago, when I would preach on the depravity of mankind, there were some people in the church, this is earlier in my pastorate, before I had driven out all the goats, there were some people at church who would protest. They didn't want to hear that about themselves. And they would protest. They would protest sometimes sitting in the seat. I could see it on their face. Sometimes with mumblings out there. But then afterwards even, sometimes kind of obliquely, sometimes straight on. And I would say, it's the word of God. It wasn't my opinion. I did not stand up and say, thus saith Chuck. It was, thus saith the Lord. There's no wiggle room there. And so the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Romans 8, verse 7, says, Because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, the unbelieving mind, the unrepentant, unregenerate mind, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. See, that explains where we are as sinners. Estranged from God as sinners. Dead in sin and trespass. Our mind is against God. We're not able to be subject to the law of God. It's not possible, nor indeed can be. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All of our works, all of our thoughts, all of our deeds are corrupted with sin. There's nothing before repentance and faith in Christ that is pleasing to God. It is all corrupted. Therefore, you think on the cosmic scales, and we just had a man on the street last Saturday saying he's always thought of scales, you know, and on one side is good deeds and on the other is bad. And I said, I'm so glad to hear you say that because that's exactly what I used to think. The problem is it's not true because the one side is completely empty and the other side is entirely full. The side of corruption is full beyond even your comprehension As hard as I'll try to preach today the total depravity, man, I would have to preach for weeks and weeks and weeks, and we still wouldn't get how depraved we are, and we still wouldn't get how depraved as individuals we are, and that we can't rightly judge ourselves, and we forget our sins, and the Lord knows not just our thoughts, but the intents of our heart, and He knows it with omniscience, and He doesn't forget And so praise God for His grace upon totally depraved sinners that He would send His Son to die for us to take the wrath of God that our sins deserve. But we must understand on the cosmic scales that we so often think of, or many do, the side of wretchedness is full and the side of righteousness is empty. 
Tragically so. Ephesians 4 speaks of the depravity of man, saying, Therefore, I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, verse 18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That is the disposition of the fallen man. Another popular evangelistic verse, a great memory verse, is Isaiah 64, 6, but we're all like an unclean thing. That's what we're like, an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So we're like filthy, disgusting, putrid things. And even our righteousnesses, all of our righteousnesses, are like filthy rags. See, we tend to have two categories. We got, yeah, okay, I admit, those things weren't so good. Okay, you got me. But what about these things? My righteousnesses outside of repentance and faith in Christ, outside of the work of the Holy Spirit within me. What about these things? My, my righteousnesses, my religious deeds, my adherence to Catholic law, or Mormon law, or Jehovah's Witness law, or Muslim law, or the laws of our land, or even the law of mother. What about these things? All of our righteousnesses, while they may be laudable by our fellow man, and may make us a better citizen or neighbor, all of our righteousnesses, righteousnesses before God who is holy, 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 who sees the thoughts and the intents of our heart, all of our righteousnesses are his filthy rags. Thus, we must forsake them. We must repent of them and come empty-handed to the cross and confess Jesus Christ and Christ's righteousness alone as our only hope. It's His righteousness that will save us. And until we empty our hands of any hope in our righteousness, we have not trusted in His righteousness and we have no hope. We remain dead in sin and trespass. Thus, this doctrine of total depravity is vital to the faith because if we can't get a hold of total depravity, if we're still thinking we we are saved by, yet Jesus, He made up for what I lacked and and, you know, I was doing pretty good, but, you know, thanks for the help, Jesus. Oh, we've got it way wrong. And Galatians warns us in that kind of thinking that we nullify grace. We don't know what amazing grace is. We, we, we can't sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When, when we do sing that, we mean total wretch, not partial Not a wee bit. Well, there was that one wretched thing I did that one time. (laughs) No, what a wretch like me. Total depravity. Romans 3 verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Are, Are we better than the unregenerate, unsaved masses? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. They're all dead in sin and trespass. They're all totally depraved. 
as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. If there's one verse to write down, one verse to remember under depravity, it is Romans 3, 9 through 12. That is a full description. None righteous. None who understands the things of God. None who seeks after God. We do not seek God. We're at enmity with God. We always and only run away from God until God regenerates our dead hearts. In fact, we hate Him. We hate Him. Those who are not yet regenerate, who profess to be lovers of God, who may well be in church today in multitude, they love an idol, not God. If they love God at all, it's a lowercase g and it's an idol. And when they're exposed to the God of Holy Scripture, the only God that exists, they express their hatred of Him. And it usually sounds like this, that's not my God. Knowing our total depravity, we must agree with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Total depravity. Second point, second letter of our beautiful tulip, God's flower, the flower of our faith, unconditional election unconditional election, which follows logically and follows theologically, does it not? If we are totally depraved, how could God look upon us with any conditions and thus elect us based upon any merit, based upon any goodness within us? He cannot, because there's no goodness within us. So if any are going to be elect, it it must be an unconditional election, not based upon any condition of the sinner. Because our condition is that we're equally dead. Thus, unconditional election. Election is God's eternal choice of certain definite individuals unto salvation. This choice was not based on any seen or foreseen merit in these individuals, but was motivated solely by His sovereign love. He set His love on the unlovable and made them lovable. That is unconditional election. And again, we find it throughout Holy Scripture. Psalm 65, 4, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. So the psalmist is praising God on the premise of this truth of the blessing of the man that God chooses and God causes to approach you. Again, under total depravity, we learn that no man is righteous, no man understands, no man seeks God. And so this follows. This individual is blessed. Otherwise, he would not Seek God. He would not approach God. So blessed is the man you choose, unconditional election. And again, these are synonyms. Election, choose, predestined. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you. If you have approached the true God, if you have repented, if you have confessed 
bent your knee and confessed Christ as your Lord, it's because God chose you and He brought you. He caused you to approach Him, that you may dwell in His courts and be satisfied with the goodness of His house and His holy temple. Matthew twenty two fourteen, the Lord Jesus says, For many are called, but few are chosen. When we minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't ask to see anyone's papers. We don't ask to see behind their left ear. We don't ask who their parents were, or what their lineage is, or their heritage is. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ broadly. We call all men everywhere to repent of sin and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We sow the seed of the gospel. We throw it forth freely, knowing that only the soil that God prepares will be that good soil where that good, perfect, holy, omnipotent seed will find root and spring up to life. But the sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. That's the ministry of the gospel. We sow it broadly. But it will only find root and grow up to life where God has elected, predestined, and chosen, and thus prepared that soil for that holy seed. For many are called, but few are chosen. Think of the Lord Jesus' ministry in Israel. Jesus was a preacher. He was an open-air preacher. He was a hellfire preacher. He preached sin and judgment and righteousness. He preached to the masses. He did miracles with evident, undeniable power, not Benny Hinn lies, TBN fraud. Undeniable power that made people tremble because it was a clear circumvention of the laws of nature. He loved them perfectly. He spoke with perfect intelligence and no one could outmaneuver him intellectually or conversationally. And when they tried, they walked away ashamed or he walked away through their midst even though they wanted to kill him so badly they couldn't. Nevertheless, this is the week we consider the Lord Jesus crucifixion as we think on the entire Roman and Jewish world crying out crucify him, crucify him united together against God and his Christ perfect wisdom, perfect love, perfect power perfect preaching, the perfect evangelist and yet the multitudes ultimately cried for his blood. Even his beloved Peter denied him with cursing. Many are called, but few are chosen. The chosen will come, and they'll not, even though on that terrible day, Peter cursed him, They'll not be lost. Jesus said to Peter, even when he told him that that was coming, and Peter said, no, never. Jesus said, when you are restored, (laughs) 
because he'll not lose one out of his father's hand, out of his hand. He'll not lose one of his elect. He'll not lose one of his chosen. He'll not lose one of his predestined, even should they fall so terribly as to publicly deny him three times, even with cursing. Many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 24, 22, unless those days were shortened, the days of tribulation, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The elect will endure. Luke 18, 7, And shall God not avenge His own elect, who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? The Lord Jesus believed in, talked about, proclaimed election. Sovereign election. And remember, the Lord Jesus Words are not just found in the red ink. The Lord Jesus' words are from Genesis to Revelation. It's all His Word, because it's the Word of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We find unconditional election preeminently in Romans chapter 8, and oh, perhaps we'll get to 9. 9 is so dangerous, sometimes you never get out of it again. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. God is the prime mover. This is monergistic salvation. God is the one moving men to seek Him. God is the one compelling men to repentance. It's not what we are doing. It's what God is doing. And when He moves, then, yes, we move. Because the power of God is on us. But what we see here is whom he foreknew, he predestined. So those whom he set his love upon, not looking down any corridor of time, that is nonsense. That is eisegesis, reading into Scripture what is not there. But he foreknew, he set his love upon them. He, he himself would predestine them to be conformed to the image of his Son. He did not foreknow that you were conforming yourself to the image of his Son. So therefore he predestined you. That's nonsense. No one conforms themselves to the image of the Son because no one understands. No one seeks God. They're at enmity with God, left to themselves. And so God foreknew. He set His love upon them. Like Adam knew Eve and she conceived, God foreknew. He set His love upon His elect. He predestined that they would be, the ones He foreknew, the ones He set His love upon, He predestined that they would be conformed to the image of His Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Unconditional election. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Well, let's touch on Romans 9 carefully. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there. We'll be there long enough to justify it. Carefully. Look to verse 6. 
But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel. And so not all of national Israel is spiritual Israel. Thus explaining why the vast majority of Israel rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, rejected their Messiah. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they're not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. What is Isaac? He's a child of miracle, a child of grace. What are the elect? They're children of miracle, children of grace. They're born again from above. It's something we cannot do in the flesh. Verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done good or evil at the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Unconditional election. They are womb mates, same father, same mother. They are physically descendants of Abraham. However, spiritually, only one of them will be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac, only one of them will be a child of promise, a miracle child, and that is Jacob. Not because he's better than Esau. I've told you many times, I like Esau better. They're both sinners, but Jacob's own name is supplanter or deceiver. I like Esau. He's a hunter. So he got hungry. Big deal. If I was choosing them, I'm Esau all the time. Jacob's a soft-skinned Mama's boy. God bless him. He's our brother. We'll meet him. (laughs) Got to bear that in mind. (laughs) But he's saved by grace. The whole point there isn't, the whole point of the story in Genesis, which we'll get to soon, isn't that, hey, Jacob was the guy. He was the man. He loved the Lord. He loved his mom. He loved his dad. This was the son of promise. I mean, look at him. No. Now, the whole point of the story is look at God, the God of grace, who saves sinners by grace alone. That's the point. In Genesis and here in Romans, roommates, both sinners born of two sinners who are descendants of the first two sinners, conceived in sin, as the psalmist said, born in sin, And yet, God, before the children were born, for the children not yet being born, says Romans 9-11, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. And you can't get unconditional election any more clear than that. God is expressly saying it had nothing to do with them, their character, their deeds, It's the purpose of God that election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Which, of course, is another point in our message, but we'll not get to it just yet. All right, we're going to avoid getting stuck in Romans 9. That is the clear and vital point point there that we desperately need for now. 
Consider John 6. There are those that struggle with Romans 9. They struggle with the Apostle Paul on the subject of God's sovereignty and the subject of unconditional election. But they are more readily subject to Jesus. Now again, Paul's words in Romans 9 are Jesus' words. We need to be subject to them equally. But let's look to John 6 and hear Jesus. In John 6, 63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. And so what does the flesh profit? Nothing. And so what did God look down the corridor of time to see, to base his conditions on in order to elect anyone? Nothing, because the flesh profits nothing because of total depravity, because our flesh is bound up in sin. Thus, Jacob and Esau were equally non-electable if it was conditional. But it's not conditional, which is the whole point, that the purpose of God would stand. Thus, unconditional election stands. The third point, we're doing good. So much time. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited Atonement, limited atonement. I think this will be the first time, if I succeed, that I have preached tulip in one message. That's the goal. Limited atonement. Limited. And this is the point that causes a great many to stumble. That's blasphemy, they say. You're limiting the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, the atonement of Christ. Well, I would argue that limiting Christ's atonement is blasphemy. But we need to rightly understand who is limiting the atonement. Limited atonement. The benefit of Christ's atoning death accrues to all of the elect. His redemptive work did not make salvation a possibility, but was alone sufficient to secure the salvation of all those who loved and elected, all those who were loved and elected by the Father. I can sum up limited atonement in one word. To tell us die. There it is. Point over. There it is. John 19.30, Jesus on the cross. It is finished. To tell us die. What is finished? It's a finished atonement. So either it's universal. All men are saved. Don't bother preaching the gospel. Everybody's going to heaven. Let's just have a nice time and get along until then. And they'll find out, even though they followed Buddha and Krishna and Allah and Shiva, they'll find out that really they were under the blood of the Lamb and they're going to be in heaven. Because to tell us die was universal, don't you know? Unlimited atonement. Equal atonement for all. Heaven is filled and hell is empty. That's unlimited atonement. Because it is finished. Jesus said so. His atonement is finished. Is that true? That hell is full and, excuse me, heaven is full and hell is empty? To tell us die is true. And the Bible is clear that there will be a vast number of sinners in hell. Broad is the way, said Jesus, to destruction, and many go thereby. Narrow is the path of life, and few should go and by it. And so, quite clearly, Christ 
atonement is limited because it is sufficient. Our, our Arminian friends limit the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. They say the atonement is universal, it just didn't work for most people. And I contend, rightly and dogmatically, that that is blasphemous. Now, unfortunately, most of our many friends don't understand what they're saying when they say that it's a universal atonement for all men. Jesus died for all sinners. They, they don't get the theological ramifications of what they're saying. But it is blasphemy because they're saying Jesus died for them and they're going to go to hell anyway. So it is finished. He took the fullness of hell on their behalf. He took the wrath of the Almighty that their sins deserve, and yet they're going to be in hell forever taking wrath their sins, double jeopardy, an unjust God. And it makes Jesus a liar. It is finished. No, it's not. Look, I'm in hell right now. What is that? That is blasphemy. And so everyone limits the atonement. Arminians limit the sufficiency and the power and the efficacy of the atonement. Calvinists receive the testimony of Scripture, receive the testimony of Jesus that it is finished for a people. It is all sufficient. It's entirely efficacious. All those he pronounced a telestai over will be saved. They will come to repentance. They will come to faith. They will be in heaven. They will go through that narrow door who is Jesus Christ. They will repent. They will confess him as Lord. Who limits the atonement in the Bible? More clearly than anyone else, Jesus himself. It's his atonement. Should we not believe him? What does he say? Matthew 1, 21. The angel of the Lord says, She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, that's what the angel of the Lord says about Jesus. And that sounds like a limited atonement. But, you know, we could have some wiggle room still. Let's get to Jesus' actual words in Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Once Jesus says many, it can never be all, each and every man, woman, and child that would ever exist again. It can never be a universal atonement, ever, because Jesus said many. So anywhere we read all in relationship to atonement, anywhere we read all in relationship to Jesus' cross or Jesus' death, we must understand that it is all of what? All of the many that he pronounced to tell us die over, that he shed his all-sufficient, entirely efficacious blood for, that he actually saved them. He actually paid a price for his people, as the angel of the Lord said. He will save his people from their sins. He actually saved them. It's not a potential salvation. It's an actual salvation. It's not a potential atonement. It's an actual atonement. He says he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. Matthew 26, 28. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples just before his death says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So the Lord Jesus, in these two passages and in several others actually, limits his atonement. To many, he does. 
Limited atonement is not a debate. It is a biblical fact, is a theological reality, and we must bend our hearts, minds, and doctrine beneath Christ, our King, who said that His blood is shed for many, for the remission of their sins. Not for the potential remission of their sins, for the actual remission of their sins. It's shed for many, for the remission of their sins. In Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. He purchased His church with His blood. Is this an actual purchase? And and then He loses some of His church? The devil snatches them away or they wander off and they go to hell? Or is it an actual purchase and not one will be lost, as Jesus said? No, it's an actual purchase. It is finished. The price is paid in full and not one will be lost. And so limited atonement, of all the points of the tulip, limited atonement is clear, it is distinct, it is powerful. And it glorifies Christ's atonement. It is the so-called unlimited or universal Atonement, the Armenian atonement that is blasphemous. It is blasphemous. We find in Isaiah 53 6 a verse that many Armenians will use to argue for an unlimited atonement. Isaiah 53 6 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Look, it's unlimited. But Jesus said, many. So anywhere it says all, it's got to be all of the many. And guess what? Isaiah 53 says many, if you keep reading. So context determines meaning, whether it's the context of the entire Bible or the context of that actual chapter. Verse 6 says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11 says, my righteous servant shall justify many. Verse 12 says, he bore the sin of many. (laughs) And so we have easy peace, we have easy understanding, right interpretation, as we simply keep reading that chapter. It's all of the many that are being spoken of in verse 6. And indeed, to Telestai is true. It is finished. John 17.2 says, You have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So how many did Jesus give eternal life to? As many as the Father had given him, all of the elect. And so we find the most ardent and clear preacher of limited atonement to be the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the Biblical truth of total depravity, the biblical reality of unconditional election, the undeniable and powerfully stated doctrine of limited atonement stated in that one singular John 19 verse 30 declaration to Telestai and repeated again and again, Old and New Testament, many, the atonement is for many. 
It is limited by scriptures, limited by God, limited by Jesus himself. And then we have irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. I'm stubborn, so I will preach all of the tulip. I'll just preach it very quickly. Irresistible grace, that when God calls, we come. It is irresistible. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's irresistible grace. Hear the Lord Jesus. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. You want irresistible grace? Just go to Jesus in John 6. Case closed. It is biblical theology. Everything else is unbiblical theology. What do you want? Biblical theology or unbiblical theology? Well, if you're a follower of Christ, you want biblical theology. The case is closed on irresistible grace. But we could say much more, and we will in another message, clearly. Perseverance of the saints. Since God is the author and the finisher of our faith, since left to ourselves, we're dead and damned in our sin, totally depraved. And God sets his love, his electing love on us. And God applies his son's atonement to us. And God calls us with his glorious, irresistible grace. And all whom the Father calls, they will come. Do you think he's going to let us go? No. Those same verses spoken out of Jesus' mouth and recorded by John in John 6 and then in John 10 are quite explicit that all whom he calls irresistibly with his sovereign grace will come and not one, not one will be lost. They will persevere and you will persevere not because of the goodness in you, but because of the goodness of God. He will preserve you in the faith that he has gifted you, thus you will persevere. As John 10, 27 sums it up, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. In John 10, 27, my sheep is synonymous with my elect, my predestined, my chosen. Hear it again. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They were sheep before what? Before he gave them eternal life. Thus in John 10, sheep is synonymous with elect, chosen, predestined. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Perseverance of the saints. Because God preserves you and he'll not let you go. All right, doubters, repent. (laughs) We preached it. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace to sinners like us. We thank you for these truths summarized in these five points of the tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Lord, grant us greater and greater clarity in these basic theological truths, soteriological truths that we must hold fast to if we're to rightly understand your amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved wretches like us, and that we might be messengers of so great a salvation, Father. 
We ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.